Good afternoon, everybody. Why don't we go ahead and begin with an Our Father, since we're talking about St. Joseph, who is the great image of God the Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today uh, I've been given the, the privilege, or the task, of talking about St. Joseph under the title of Terror of Demons. I think it's probably the most interesting and exciting title in the litany of St. Joseph. But what does it mean? What does it mean to say that Joseph is the terror of demons? How do we how do we understand it? And what I want to do today is kind of maybe take a little journey to try to understand it, not so much just in a, a pious or a devotional way, but a little bit on a deeper theological meaning. And so as I began praying about this and preparing for the talk, I thought to myself, well, if Joseph is the terror of demons, what exactly is it that demons are afraid of? What do they feel terror in the face of? Now, we know our demonology, we've maybe seen the exorcist, if you're not too scared, demons are afraid of Jesus. They're afraid of holy water, crucifixes, things of the sort of that sort. But as I began praying about it, there was one specific story that continued to jump out at me from the lives of the saints that I thought maybe would offer a little bit of insight. And it comes from St. Therese and her story of a soul. Some of you may know this little story. It's a recounting of a dream that she had when she was a young child. I'm going to go ahead and and read the dream and her interpretation of it, or what she thought it meant, and then we're going to kind of go from there. She says, quote, I remember a dream that I had at that age, I think it's three or four, which left a very deep impression. I was walking alone in the garden when suddenly I saw two horrible little devils near the arbor, dancing on a barrel of lime with amazing agility. In spite of having heavy irons on their feet, they looked at me with flaming eyes. Then, as if overcome by fear, threw themselves in the twinkling of an eye into the bottom of the barrel. They escaped in some mysterious way and ran off to hide in the linen room, which opens onto the garden. When I saw how cowardly they were, I put my fears aside and went over to the window to see what they were up to. There the little wretches were, running round and round the table and not knowing how to escape my gaze. Time to time they came nearer, still very agitated, to peep through the window. Then when they saw I was still there, they began racing about again in abject misery. So Therese really never understood this dream until a little bit later on in her life when its meaning became clearer. And so she explains, I do not suppose this dream was very extraordinary, but I do think God made use of it to show me that a soul in the state of grace need never be afraid of the devil, who is such a coward that even the gaze of a child 
will frighten him away. And so there's a twofold lesson, and I think Therese explains that she learns here, that there's no need to fear Satan. We have no need to fear the evil one if we are in the state of grace. But second, and probably more importantly, that Satan is scared of a child, scared of children, particularly the gaze of this little three- or four-year-old precocious child. He ran away from her, trying not to make eye contact, scared of her. And so as I was praying on that, I sort of, in my mind at least, made the connection to the second creation account in Genesis, that after the fall, Adam and Eve are there in the garden, and they hear Yahweh walking around in the, in the evening. And so, what did they do? They hid themselves. They tried to get away from the Lord so that he could not see them. Why? Because of fear, because of shame. Adam himself says, we hid ourselves because we were afraid of you. In the same way that these little demons ran away from Therese and tried to hide. And so if my understanding here is correct, and I'm not a demonologist, I think we can get a a sort of unique insight from Therese in this theology of the saints, an insight into Satan and the nature of evil. And if Satan is what we think he is here, then he is filled with shame and fear and insecurity, even in the face of this tiny little innocent child. And again, I've I've never done an exorcism. I don't really want to have anything to do with any of that stuff. But I know enough that usually the demons hide. They conceal themselves. They don't want you to know that they're there. And they really do not want to reveal their names because then they are exposed. And so even then it sort of shows that the demons want to hide from the light. Why do we want to hide from the light? Because we're fearful. We're scared. We are ashamed. What about the the, the stories we hear, these terrifying possessions and exorcisms? And the devil has all these very frightening tactics. People can't even watch the exorcists or even read about or hear stories about actual possessions. What does that mean? Well, I think if Therese is correct and the devil is a coward, then these types of tactics are the tactics of a bully. The bully who's really a coward that wants to scare you and threaten you. But if you're willing, like Therese, to face him eye to eye and say, I am not going to back down. I'm not frightened of you. I know who has my back. This is what a bully does. Aggressive, scare tactics, insults. The bully on the playground is really a coward. You just have to stand up to him. And this is, I think, what we see play out in Therese's dream. So what is it, though, that gives Therese, in this dream and in her life, a confidence to face the demons without fear, to go in search of them, to try to make eye contact. Why? Because unlike Eve, she was not afraid of being seen by God. She wasn't trying to hide. She wasn't trying to conceal herself because there's no shame. As John Paul II says, it's that original shame that makes Adam and Eve hide. 
She is willing to stand in the light to allow the Father to see her. And because of this, she was secure of her identity. She knew that she was a daughter. She knew that she was loved by him and that he, God, would protect her. She had nothing to be scared of. The beautiful quote that I used in my class a couple of weeks ago from Hans Urs von Balthasar that I think really sort of sums this up. He says, quote, Holiness consists in enduring God's glance. It may appear mere passivity to withstand the look of an eye, but everyone knows how much exertion is required when this occurs in an essential encounter. Our glances mostly brush by each other indirectly, or they turn quickly away, or they give themselves not personally, but only socially. So too, we constantly free from God into a distance that is theoretical, rhetorical, sentimental, aesthetic, or most frequently pious. Or we flee to him from external works, and yet the best thing would be to surrender one's naked heart to the fire of this all-penetrating glance. The heart would then see itself have to catch fire. If it were not always artificially dispersing the rays that come to it, is through a magnifying glass. Such enduring would be the opposite of a Stoic's hardening his face. It would be yielding, declaring oneself beaten, capitulating, entrusting oneself, casting oneself onto him. It would be childlike loving, since for children, the glance of the father is not painful. With wide open eyes, they look into his. Little Therese, great little Therese could do it. Augustine's magnificent formula on the essence of eternity, to look at him who is looking at you, unquote. And so for Therese, there's no reason to hide, no reason to be ashamed, no reason to be scared. She's confident. The Lord is watching. He's got her back. She does not need to be scared of the demons. And this confidence in the Father that's exhibited in Therese is what I believe the demons sense and run away from. It's the same thing that made them frightened of Jesus. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, and we can see plenty of other instances of this in Scripture. What have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? Son of God, we know who you are. We know who you are in relationship to. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Luke 4, verse 34. And so, here is where we tie into, or I'd like to try to tie into, today's theme. St. Joseph, terror of demons. It's this same thing. The childlike trust, the confidence in God that makes the demons so scared of St. Joseph. Joseph has no need to hide. Joseph knows who he is, knows what he's called to, is secure in his identity, and as a son, has the childlike trust in the father. We often so much focus on uh, Joseph as the father, but he was also a son. He knew who he was, and therefore he was able to give himself in this particular mission. 
He's not going to be bullied by the evil one. He's not going to be scared or care about what other people think. But where is it, though, that Joseph's confidence, his fearlessness, his trust is most exhibited? Now, probably the easy answer would be, well, whenever he goes into the fight against Egypt, into Egypt or whenever he takes Mary, regardless of the consequences. But I want to propose there's something else that most of us don't notice, and until I was reading and praying about it, I didn't notice myself. Another point that is evidence of how much Joseph trusts. And the reason that we can see this, or the place that we can see it most evidently, I will argue, is when Joseph was asleep and dreaming. Joseph was asleep and dreaming. I'm taking sort of this insight from probably the best book that I've ever read on St. Joseph. Some of you may have encountered it. It came out this year by this French philosopher, Magnificat, uh, published it. The guy's name is Fabrice Hajjaj. I guess I'm pronouncing it correct. And it's called To Be a Father with St. Joseph. I really encourage you, if you don't have the book, to go and find it and read it. It's so packed full of good stuff. And there's a chapter in there called St. Joseph, the Patron of Dreamers. Patron of Dreamers. And so Hajjaj notices that in the space of, I think it's about 30 verses, the angel appears to Joseph four times in a dream. So what does that mean? That in the small space, Joseph is sleeping, is taking naps, enough for him to start having dreams, he's an REM sleep, I guess, four times. He's like most seminarians in the middle of class these days. He's asleep. And so what does Ajaj say? What do we think? We can only sleep when we feel safe. Whenever we know that we are safe is when we can sleep. The child sleeps and sleeps deeply because he or she knows her parents, his parents are watching. They have nothing to fear. The father is watching. And so Joseph can sleep all of this time, knowing that the Lord is watching and protecting him. Here's this wonderful little quote from St. Therese. He says, she says, quote, Jesus deigned to show me the road that leads to the divine furnace. And this road is the surrender of the little child who sleeps without fear in its father's arms. The child can sleep without fear because the father's got the kid. Got the kid. Everything is going to be fine. And so sleeping in general, and I'm going to argue here in Joseph's life, is an expression of the security which springs from the childlike trust in the father. Remember, St. Therese had this meaningful dream whenever she was asleep as a kid, knowing that Louis was watching out for her and protecting her. In one of her pious exercises that she wrote while she was at the convent, this one deals with the flight into Egypt. And so she puts these words, Therese does, into the mouth of Mary. Joseph, may God bless your sleep. Rest in peace beneath the gaze of him 
whose heart is always watching. Joseph knew that he was living in the gaze of the Lord, that he was going to be okay. Now, Hajjaj continues and says that, yes, indeed, Joseph was able to sleep and dream because he knew he was safe, he was secure in his childhood, but also that he slept in order that he could later be awake and keep watch. And so here he explains this. He says, Jesus said, stay awake in a plural form, not singular. Through this ardor, he establishes a community rolling guard duty, that each one may watch over his neighbor, and that each may have brothers to whom he can entrust himself in the vulnerability of his sleep. Joseph participates in this very particular guard duty. As a father, he rose at night to look after his child so his wife could sleep and take over again in the morning. So yeah, every night he was the one who allowed Mary to sleep, but also in the greater scheme of things, the, the arc of his life, the arc of his story. Bethlehem, flight into Egypt, and Nazareth. He was always able to sleep so he could be awake, to keep watch, to protect Jesus and Mary, but also to keep his eyes open for threats, the wolves that come and monitor on the perimeter. Satan, he wasn't scared. He believed that he would have been always looking behind, looking around, not fearful willing to stand his ground in face of a threat. He never hid, had no idea that he needed to hide from God. And so somehow sensed that he was ashamed like Eve or Adam were. But like Elijah in the Old Testament, God does take him and Mary and Jesus and hides them away, hides them away in Egypt to keep them safe not escaping from the vision of God, but instead finding refuge in Egypt. Makes me think of the Compline Tuesday reading in Antiphon from 1 Peter chapter 5. We all know it. Stay sober and alert. Your opponent, the devil, is prowling like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, solid in your faith. And of course, every night we pray, protect us, Lord, as we stay awake. Watch over us as we sleep, that awake we may keep watch with Christ and asleep rest in his peace. Same sentiments that I am sort of trying to explain here are there. Because the Lord is watching over us, we the just, like Joseph, are able to sleep, are able to rest because we know that God, our Heavenly Father, is watching out for us. However, as Scripture says, there is no rest for the wicked. And it's something that Hajjaj again brings up in this chapter. Sort of a quote from, or an insight from, uh, that we've heard before, but actually he claims comes from the imitation of Christ. The devil never sleeps. Heard that before, the devil never sleeps. He's always on the prowl. And neither do his minions. In history, in scripture, in literature, 
the Pharisees. Never notice how they like to meet at night. Why are they asleep? Why are they there conspiring at night to bring Jesus down? If we look at history, the KGB, the Gestapo, these totalitarian regimes, they're always awake, always watching. You can never be safe. Then literature, Big Brother, or even for the nerds out there, and I think there are a lot of you nerds out there, the Eye of Sauron, the littlest eye, flaming, always looking, always watching. Hobbits can sleep. They have no problem sleeping. But Sauron can't. Why is evil always awake, always watching? They can never rest. Why? Because they need to be in control. Evil one always knows what's going on to control and to maintain that control. Because if you fall asleep, you fear someone coming and putting a knife in your back of stealing your authority, losing power. It's a grasping for power, this refusal to sleep out of fear of losing control. Look at every dictator that's ever been, never safe. There's always a threat to the power. They always have to be watching their back or having someone else watch their back. There's no chance to rest, no place to hide. This is the opposite of the rest that St. Joseph enters into. Hajjaj again. It would be a misunderstanding to reduce this sleep to a, a letting go. Instead, it's the abandonment to the most basic of activities, of being here, of receiving life, of resting like dough ready for the kneading. Because my being doesn't depend on my thinking. I am without being at source. I am even when I no longer am there, when I'm asleep, when I'm doing nothing, that nothingness from which God creates all things. The loss of consciousness disposes me to true responsibility. By abandoning myself in this way, he continues, I'm no longer that hyperactive person seeking to control everything in order to save the world. By abandoning myself in this way, by recognizing that I am not the principle of being and of the good, I can be their companion, can act according to the order of reality and not according to my development plans." End quote. Joseph does not need to be in control. He trusts the Lord is in control so he can rest. He can take his little naps, allow the Lord to speak to him. He knows that God is the one in control, that he can trust in him. He's confident in this. And and so as I thought about that, this is so crucial that Joseph is indeed the terror of demons, but it's probably correct to say that the demons aren't necessarily terrorized by him, and not that it's his sort of existence that terrorizes him, but his confidence intimidates them. So I think probably the better way of phrasing it is Joseph the intimidator of demons. Like a weak person, a shameful person, is intimidated by a person with confidence, who knows who they are, who knows that God is on their side. The demons are intimidated by Joseph, 
by Therese, by the Lord, and therefore cannot make eye contact. Now, okay, fine. Fault that you finally got around to talking about St. Joseph, but what about priestly formation? Everything, of course, has to sort of tie back to priestly formation. What does this have to do with our life here? Now, of course, as I said, I'm not advocating more sleeping during class. Maybe more naps, just at the appropriate time. But I think that it points a lot, at least in this part here, to our desire to control. And our is men as Christians, as seminarians, and even as priests, as clerics, are an inability to rest that comes from a lack of filial trust in God, and from fear and insecurity. In three ways, mainly. First of all, in our prayer. This is something that I'm realizing and coming to understand, that we want to perform in prayer. I'm going to go in prayer. I'm going to pray the best novena possible. I'm going to come out like on a great leg day. I'm going to feel swole with Jesus. I'm going to achieve holiness. What does that make Jesus? Not your Savior. He's your high school coach. He's wearing the gym shorts, the tall socks, and the whistle around his neck. No! That's what prayer is. We're not there to impress the Lord with how holy we are. Instead, that's what we're doing. Go in there and prayer becomes doing. It becomes thinking. It becomes achieving. That's not what prayer is essentially is. Number two, it's very easy to pick up when we want to control a negative and critical attitude. Nothing is ever good enough. It's like the Pharisees and their attitude towards Jesus. We're going to bring others down to build ourselves up. Oh, if I was in charge, this is how it would happen. If I was in control, we do it a lot differently. So when we say, I know better, or we criticize to bring down, it's really us sort of grasping for control, a form of pride, possibly of insecurity, bringing others down to build ourselves up. And then finally, a way to control, which we really like to do, is with a rigid rubricism when it comes to the liturgy. I believe in following the rubrics. I believe in the beauty of the liturgy that's been given to us to worship as the church acts, but too much rigidity means quite often we want to exert control on the outside because there's no order on the inside. We're going to have everything like what it is, and if anyone doesn't do it right, we're going to rip them to shreds. That points to the fact that maybe we don't have control in here. There's a lack of order. It's a great temptation for priests, though. Because the priest, particularly when you become the pastor, you're in control. You're the boss. And the temptation to think that I'm the savior, the parish, the person in front of me, and, if you're really full of it, of the church. Oh, Jesus is the savior of the church. But quite often, as I sort of alluding to, this is rooted in a much deeper fear or even insecurity in the sense that I am insecure, I do not feel safe or secure. It's the shame of who we are, of not knowing our identity, which makes us conceal ourselves, hide. I was really touched by what Father Rodrigue had to say in his homily when he was here. The responsibility of the seminarian to reveal himself to 
formators, not conceal. We're not here to judge. We're not here to kick you out because we don't like you. No, we need to be willing to reveal ourselves to the Lord and reveal ourselves to the formator to bring these things to light. Because we cannot follow a call. We can't hear and be obedient if we're hiding. Shame. We need the courage to face the challenges of priestly existence, to trust, like St. Joseph, that the Lord will protect us and provide for us even when we don't understand and even when we feel inadequate. So how do we gain this trust, this confidence in the Lord that intimidates the evil one, that terrorizes the evil one? And I can give you a lot of answers, but I think the best one, and it's one that I think most people will like, is we need, as a church, and as men, and as seminarians and priests, we need to learn to rest. The Sabbath that recreates. Not the weekend, it's a different thing. The Sabbath that recreates. And here are three ways, sort of, tied to the three critiques that I offered a few minutes ago. The first is this, and this is the most important, is to strive to seek or see prayer as a time of rest rather than work. Remember, the apostles go out and they're out doing all kinds of stuff, healing people and casting out demons. Jesus says, come away and rest for a while. Again, I'm not saying let's take naps during holy hour. Prayer becomes a version of rest. Probably the best way I've ever heard this explained is from an English Carmelite sister named Sister Mary McCormick. She wrote it in my favorite little introduction to prayer called Upon This Mountain. She says, prayer gradually becomes characterized by the ability to rest peacefully in a loving sense of God's presence without desiring anything else. Words and ideas give way to silent communion. The flame of love is burning steadily, and the most we need to do, if it seems to die down, is to blow gently. The heart's movement of praise or gratitude from time to time is enough. The new knowledge of God freely given is not even disturbed by the restless wandering of our thoughts. And it is best just to let them wander. Trying to rein them in will only result in losing the nameless peace in which one can still rest at a level deeper than thought. Some pretty important words right there. Number two, cultivate life-giving friendships. There's a wonderful quote which we could give a whole talk on from St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He says, we find rest in those we love and provide a resting place in ourselves and those who love us. And this is something that I think guys are really able to do, in a certain sense, more than women. Guys can just hang out. We can just sort of be together. We can drink a beer. We can watch a sporting event. We don't need to impress each other. We can just be with the other, not gossiping or complaining, but friendships that really build us up where we can find rest, not a lot of work, having to impress someone 
or to try to be something we're not with the individuals we're friends with. And as a priest, you're going to really find it in families in your parish. After the long day, they will welcome you into their home and they become, in their own lives, places of rest. And then third and finally is something that we can all advocate, and of course I'm speaking to you from my iPad as I say this, less screen time. Time in front of a screen. So much distraction. We know it breeds anxiety. And more time in genuine leisure and rest. I'm not saying that you can't play a game or you can't watch a movie. I'm not saying that at all. But we know what I'm talking about. To be able to have a deeper leisure that connects us to others in reality. A wonderful poem by Wendell Berry, who I'm sure most of you know, talking about this. As I was preparing, three separate people this week sent this poem to me. He says, When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought or grief, I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their lights. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Again, you can spend some time reflecting on that. So where am I going with all of this? I'm going to offer some points for reflection, some points uh, for the rest of our day, practical things to reflect upon. Before I do so, one last sort of suggestion tied to this. So much of what I talked about today is is St. Joseph and rest, and St. Joseph the sleeper, the dreamer. But isn't he the patron saint of workers? We normally associate Joseph with work. It's common to see him in the shop working with Jesus, you know, building, I don't know, his little car or whatever they built back in the day. I thought about it, as much as Joseph would have spent time with the Christ child there in the shop, wouldn't he have spent more time playing with Jesus, having leisure time with his son? Because play, genuine play, is the most distinctive characteristic of childhood. Only when a child feels safe can it rest or can it play. During war times, it's very difficult to sleep, very difficult to play. Playfulness, eutropelia, a favorite virtue that Thomas elucidates in the second part of the second part. And Therese's dream, if you go back and read it, actually sort of seems playful. Like she's playing hide-and-seek with these demons. Is it this the thing that the demons really fear? Her childlike nature, which is exhibited in play. Because if you think about it, the demons don't know how to rest, and they really don't know how to play. Demons, who are not childlike, very, very serious. Play is that form of rest, of recreation, the Sabbath, 
You can look at some of the early writings of the church. It talked about God and the logos and sort of creating the world as a form of play, as the world is the playground for the word. Going back, though, to rest, what are the three points of reflection? First is this. I believe that we need priests who will intimidate the evil one with their childlike confidence in the Father. Priests who will intimidate the evil one. And so if that's the case, today, look at your own life. Make the examination of conscience. What areas are you grasping for control in? Grasping for control rather than giving it over to the Lord. Or what are the areas that you are hiding and concealing from God, from your formators, from your spiritual director? What are these obstacles then that might be the hurdles from trust and obedience keep you hiding in the shadows? That's the first one. What are the things that are stopping us from becoming intimidators of Satan? Second, I am well aware here and from my own experience in the seminary that a lot is expected. A lot is expected of the seminary in today. Oh, but wait till you get to the parish. Particularly wait till you become a pastor. So much more work. So much more is demanded. And you can't ask for an extension whenever there's a funeral. You just got to do it. There's going to be a lot of work. And so what happens is, it's easy for the priests, particularly today, and there are not going to be a lot of us out there, to get caught up in busyness, resentment, the bishop or the pastor for all the things that we have to do. Burnt out. Become self-medicating. We need to learn the habit of genuine rest and leisure now. With the work burden that we have, no sense in complaining about it, it's not going to go away. There's just going to be more. We need to learn that habit now so that when we do go into the parish, we're going to be able to thrive. What does Sabbath, what does rest, what does sleep look like for us today? And how can we extend that in our time as priests and pastors? And then finally, a childlike trust that Therese had, that Joseph had, that acts as the terror of demons, is contingent to a great degree on our experience of God as a loving and merciful father. You can't be a trusting son if you don't know God as a loving father. So ask yourself, though, if we're struggling to trust the Lord as a father, do we even know him as a loving father? Not just here, but from an experiential level. Or is the Lord more a capricious tyrant, a coach, a distant deity? Because if that's the case, then true filial trust is impossible. He'll never intimidate the evil one. What is your concept our experience of God, and if we see that it's lacking from our own examination today, what needs healing and transformation? So these three prayers, and you could, are areas of reflection, you could focus on one, you could focus on all three, as we spend time this afternoon 
before the Lord, resting, maybe taking a little nap, resting there. Bring these questions to him and ask Jesus to reveal to us, the intercession of Therese and Joseph, what our heart needs to be the priest that he's calling us to be. So I'm going to close with a prayer. It's actually the end of Pope Francis's Patris Corday, the prayer to St. Joseph, which, very deep and theological, you might even sort of spend some time reflecting on that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail, guardian of the Redeemer, spouse of the Blessed Virgin Mary. To you, God entrusted his only Son, In you, Mary placed her trust. With you, Christ became man. Blessed Joseph, to us too, show yourself a father and guide us in the path of life. Obtain for us grace, mercy, and courage and defend us from every evil. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.